I'm Tyler. I'm Megan. And this is The Office Hours, the podcast where two literature professors analyze the great American story. Hey, Megan. Hey, Tyler. How are you? I'm feeling pretty good about today's episode because I feel like it's going to be a perfect storm for you of gender stuff and class stuff and office meets the warehouse. So, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's where I'm at emotionally right now. You texted me. I think you texted me this morning or last night and you were like, you know, this is going to be an epic one. And I was like, (laughs) oh, I wonder, I wonder what Megan's talking about. And then I was like watching it this morning to prep and I was like, oh, shit. Like, this is going to be a a two-parter maybe. It's such a, it's such a dense episode (laughs) with social meeting, but. uh, There's a lot going on. I, this time I was pasting lots of the dialogue into my notes and that put me at four pages of notes. So oh my God, I'm going to need to try and like tamp it down. Um, but we've got a lot to look forward to before that though. I do have a big, uh, big segment for revisions and regrets. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, what do you got? Two episodes ago, we asked Nick to come back to us with more detail about the parts of the ship oh, and yeah. going back to booze cruise. So it's two episodes ago because we actually recorded one in between. But anyway, he heard the call and he responded. Oh, thank you, Nick. Excellent detail. And this was because, so this is now a revision to my revision because I had been confused. I had called to go back to where we were. I'd called the place where Captain Jack goes with Meredith, the captain's closet, which you thought was not right. So found out the bridge. But then as I got to talking about it more, I got confused about what part of the boat it actually was. So this is where Nick is coming in for us. Okay. Okay. So he says, to clarify where the controls are on a large boat and or ship is the bridge. If you think Captain Jack and Meredith were fooling around in the bathroom, though, then they would be in the head. If it was the bedroom, I believe it's the birth. The birth? Yes. He said, I was trying to communicate that if you felt like Captain Jack was fooling around with Meredith where the controls are, then that was the bridge. But so it's a question partly of identifying exactly where we think they were and then going to the ship terminology. Do you think that there is like a schematic for the boat that they were on? Like, do you think we could find the the the, the plans or something and determine? That is a great question. The structure I, of the ship? I bet we could because I bet someone, not us, a different person, could identify yeah. based on watching exactly what model of boat it is. And then we can look up the layouts of those boats. Now, what would be, okay, so a berth would be the captain's, like, special sleeping place, or would that be the name of any sleeping place? Do you know what I mean? Like, Nick, we're coming back to you. <laughs> Every like, time we get into this, I feel like we just end up with additional questions. I have more questions, yeah. But also, he didn't specify that it's a captain's bedroom. I think he just said if it was a bedroom, a I believe bedroom. it's a berth. Okay, okay, okay. Well, that sounds, yeah, because I'm, you know, recalling my Titanic, like, upper berth, lower berth. 
but I just like, yeah, I am curious also about the plurality and singularity. Like, would you say <laughs> like I'm going to my birth now? Like that's such an interesting. It is awkward. I, I want to know. Like maybe, it, it, yeah. Yeah. They call it cabin too. Is cabin like the more casual that's a reference to the bedroom ship? Yeah. And then I, for some reason I thought quarters was a, Oh, yeah, like the captain's quarters. Yeah, I thought that was a thing, but I'm basing that entirely on Star Trek, and uh, <laughs> that may not be the best model. As or... usual, Tyler's not... To be fair, the bridge on Star Trek is where the controls of the ship are. So, okay. perhaps, you know, so it translates those... from the sea to outer space. I would love it if there is a podcast that's entirely devoted to the appearance of ships within popular culture. And so that they, on their podcast, the, the, uh, the seafaring hours or whatever, they have a, um, an episode devoted also to this single episode of the office. Ooh, <laughs> so if we could find nice. them, uh, we, we could have them on as guests or something. I was going to say, it is surprising how much this has turned into a ship discussion podcast. It's interesting because it's, I think, I wonder if part of the, the fascination for us is it's one of the few times we leave the office, you know, it's like we're yeah, in this yeah. entirely different organizational layout. Um, yeah. Kind of like, like Chili's. Today. Oh yes. Like Chili's. Yeah. Except yeah. you and I are intimately familiar with Chili's. We are. So maybe that's part of it is that in the past when we've left the office, it's been to a place that we have, really deep knowledge of whereas not hooters uh, just to be clear not hooters oh yeah but we were interested in hooters too we were that's true yeah yeah Yeah, but chilies we have yet to i really do think we need to like go to chilies in honor of the podcast and uh definitely anyway i have no revisions and regrets but i do have like a uh I just want to, you know like spill a little tea for the listeners so they can know how it works frequently after an episode Megan and I will text or after recording an episode, we'll text each other. Like that was good. That was fun or, or something. Or, you know, did I say anything like crazy, et cetera, <laughs> um, that I'm going to regret later. Uh, and usually it's a little bit of both, but um, after that last episode, we were texting like, Oh my God, uh, I can't believe now I love that episode. Like I really, it was so much fun to talk about it. And in the, like, you can hear it in the process of the episode <laughs> for me, my, my appreciation growing the yes. minute Megan brings up like Freud, I'm like, Oh, what? <laughs> and suddenly now there's new layers. And, and anyway, so I, I, yeah, my, I guess my only regret is that I didn't love that episode as much as I came to, but mm-hmm. then I wouldn't have gone on a journey with our listeners. So um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that, was good. that was good. Yeah, we definitely talked ourselves into liking that more than we thought we were going to. But this episode was already a, a home run for me. I mm-hmm. think this is top tier office. This yeah. is uh, creme de la creme. This is prestige office. Uh, oh, that's interesting because maybe then this as the sort of exemplary type of episode can really teach us something about the form. What is it that makes the office the office? Yes. All right. Well, are you ready to dive in? I'm ready to go. All right. Well, this episode, number 15, Boys and Girls, Jan's Women in the Workplace seminar prompts Michael to host a parallel meeting with the guys. Pam eyes an internship. That is our official description from Peacock. And I don't know if it's the first time that they use a semicolon uh, in it, but I must say I love a semicolon and I love it when used correctly as it is here. So 
Uh, yeah, whoever, like, whatever former English major is running Peacock, good job. <laughs> you definitely want to have a good editor at Peacock. You know, you do not want to have misplaced semicolons when you've got that level of visibility. So well done. Not everyone gets that right. Now, I have a question right at the top. Um, now, the episode is called Boys and Girls. In the summary, we're reminded that Jam's seminar is women in the workplace, <laughs> not girls. And then Michael is hosting a parallel meeting and they use the word guys, not boys. Yeah. Do you, I don't re actually remember very much whether there's a ton of like waffling around the word play, like mm -hmm. of, like, of gender, like do, do they, do we go between boys and girls or guys or something like that in the episode? Good question. There is a place when Michael uses the word girls and then realizes he's supposed to say women. And this yes. is an interview, the first, his first interview where he's talking about Jan's seminar. And he says, uh, women in the workplace. Yeah, translation. I've been banned from my own conference room so that Jan can talk in secret to all the girls. Oh, sorry, women of the workplace. Right, right. About what? I don't know. Clothes, me. Yeah, so he does that quick catch thing like, oh, sorry, I'm not supposed to say girls. I'm supposed to say women. Here's what I think, Tyler. Mm -hmm. I think we are lacking a good parallel with guys. Mm. Because sometimes, I don't know, sometimes women, it's just too formal or too Adult, I feel like I find myself thinking of the term women as always being for people who are older than me. Yeah, yeah. Even though I've definitely aged into a place where woman is the appropriate uh, word for my peers. <laughs> but I wish we could bring back gals. Ooh. No one says gals anymore. But That's I feel true. like people our mom's age kind of said gals. And that was kind of a parallel with guys, because it makes sense, you know, girls is sort of infantilizing and sort of talking down. But as we can see, as you've pointed to in the summary, women is like, a, is a weird parallel with guys and with the sort of informality of guys. So I love that, because I, the other day, I was thinking about this, or I was like, okay, you know, because I definitely have a bad habit or just a habit. I'm not sure if it's bad of saying you guys. It's like oh, me too. I'm from the East Coast. It's a Philly, you know, staple for sure. Um, and I've always enjoyed it as a phrase. Uh, I've tried y'all and you all and, and that doesn't feel right in my mouth, uh, <laughs> you know, but it, but it, but I am well aware, you know, that guys is like, gendered even though I don't necessarily feel like my invocation of it is intended to perpetuate yes um uh it's sort of uh, masculinity or whatever so but I was thinking about this and I was like okay well what would be what's the like gendered opposite of guys and for some reason I kept thinking of guys and dolls uh the music oh, yeah <laughs> and I was like well I don't want to say dolls <laughs> like but I was picturing like a 1920s or whatever and so it's interesting then gals didn't even like come into my mind as an option yeah. um but you're so right that's not like not even in use uh as an alter you know I hear people use ladies um yeah and, and ladies is too yeah too fem it's like too intensely 
gendered. So I think actually my ultimate thing is really just to take the gender out of guys. I think guys is a great gender neutral. Not everyone agrees with that. I understand that. Yeah. But I definitely apply guys. Like I'll walk into a class that I'm teaching, even in a case when it's been a class of all women or almost and say, Hey guys, I realize I shouldn't do that. I it's 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 a it's complicated because it's like I've always sort of liked the slight gender bendy nature of that move, yeah. right? Because, yeah. it, but on the other hand, it I suppose I I understand the argument that it hails everybody within the terms of masculinity, like saying, um, gentlemen or or, or you yeah. know, um, men. <laughs> like, you know, can you imagine being like, okay, gentlemen? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> or uh, or like um, Congress congressman right like you know so you know and i'm all on board for congressperson or 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 you know mail carrier you know i i really like that um Mm -hmm. uh broadening of and and degendering so yeah i don't know maybe this is just like my retrograde (laughs) cultural formation but on the other hand i'm like yeah it is it is frustrating that there's not a kind of femme term that could have the same gender bendy appeal that guys does yeah Um, yeah uh here's here's a question so this is an additional argument in favor of intensifying the degendering of guys you know how actor has become more gender neutral yes a lot of women actors say actor and not actress and a Mm -hmm. lot of people in talking to them say actor and i think we could argue so we just gave everybody the male title but if it's working with actor i hope it'll work with guys Mm, interesting i feel like we are uh, touching a hot button topic here and so my (laughs) desire is to turn to something safer like unionizing and uh... (laughs) (laughs) yeah we can return we can return in revisions and regrets and i can uh, correct my record (laughs) um Okay, so yeah, where do you want to start here? Because like this episode, I'm like, I'm all over the place with this episode. Like it's almost in to an extent, it doesn't feel like a plot heavy episode. Like it doesn't actually feel like there's a huge story here, mm-hmm. um, except maybe the maybe the uh, the unionizing. But yeah, I'm kind of curious. Where do you want to go in order? Where do you want to start? Interesting, actually, that the unionizing doesn't make it into the summary. Yeah, because you're right. That is kind of the biggest potentially transformative event, but yeah, it doesn't show up. Well, why don't we start from the beginning and from Michael's reaction to this seminar. So Jan is gathering the women employees in the conference room. (laughs) I want to know what you think about her seminar. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Pam introduces it she has a little interview where she she talks about what they're doing on this women in the workplace day and michael is hovering at the edge and he clearly you know jan is trying to fend him off and keep him out but something about him he is just so activated by this seminar i was really interested in i i kind of wanted to ask you about that whether you have a theory on what it is that upsets him or agitates him about um, being excluded from it? Or is it simply the fact that he's excluded? Um, Or is it more specifically that it's 
that it's about um, a kind of gender, uh, um, what do you call it? I don't know, like gathering, yeah. <laughs> a gathering around a, a gender that is not his. Yeah. That's a good question. And that's what I was, I feel like I don't have an answer to. And I was trying to think about as well. I definitely think part of it is just him being excluded. I think he probably sees it as this potential bonding that he's not able to be a part of. Yeah. And I don't know. It's like, it just taps into something for him. And there is, I do think some kind of like the, the gender part of it is there, you know, oh, yeah. he then, and he talks about how um, in one of the other branches, they did this and they ended up creating a lactation room. Yeah. It was disgusting. He said, or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so he does fear the consequences of this. That's certainly true. It's interesting. Cause I was kind of like imagining a counter um, where like, okay, what if, I don't know how, you know, how it would play out, but if you could imagine a situation in which, he is the center of attention and it's still, a, but it's nonetheless about women yeah. and about like women's um, needs uh, in the workplace or whatever. Uh, I can just, I, and, and I think it's, it's not like, it, I think it's an indication of his, his ideological flexibility. Like if he still could be the center mm. of attention, he would be like all on board for women's issues or whatever in the same way that he is kind of like um, tr he tries to be the center of attention around diversity day or whatever like yes. um if he could be the expert um and uh, and that's why i actually loved this beginning where he's like what's more important than quality equality <laughs> now studies show that today's woman the ally mcbeal woman as i call her is at a crossroads <laughs> michael no just uh you've come a long way baby and, and like so this desire to like he wants to give a kind of um he wants to be the gender expert, right? Like he wants to yeah, be. Yeah, he does. Uh, so I don't know. I was just kind of thinking about that because that's a, a little different than like you can imagine the Todd Packer response yes. to, would be a true, genuine misogyny born out of like a, a belief that women aren't not equal and that they are inferior. And um, yes. um, so it wouldn't just be that he's not like a part of the meeting, but also that he wouldn't want to be uh yes in a way I don't know I don't have a point about it just like I was just like no, it's, it's, it's just interesting that Michael's you know I don't know re a reactionary but um without <laughs> without much purpose yes that's such a good distinction and you use the word flex his flexibility his ideological flexibility which I think is right on because yeah I think he would love to be for I think I think Michael is aggressively pro women's rights if he is able to lead the meeting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's the kind of irony of Michael, I suppose, is that yeah, he does have to be at the helm of that ship, if you will. But uh he comes into with such a speech, like he he speaks the language of the seminar. <laughs> yes. Kind of like the hero in uh, uh, diversity, sorry, I'm losing that title in the diversity day episode that, you know, H E R O it's standing for things, his twist on, you know, what's better than quality equality. He's got a whole pitch already. I also love how he says 
who I call the Ellie McBeal woman, how he's giving a title to this category of today's woman. Yes. Brilliant, Michael. Did you ever watch Ellie McBeal by any chance? I did not. I was hoping that you did. Oh, I did. I watched a lot of I thought you would have. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that implies, but I, I was, I, yeah, I watched a lot of it. And, um, and I think it was cause my mom watched it, you know, it was, like, it was what was on or I don't know, but I definitely, I remember enjoying it. I don't really remember much about it, but it did have this, like, I, I don't like, I remember they all peed in the same bathroom, you know, like there was a gender neutral or whatever bathroom or something like that. I remember oh, that was like a key gathering space and uh, in the narrative, they're like lawyers. I, I don't remember. I wish I had like done some research for the kind of discourse that was around the show, like whether or not, because he must be invoking a kind of like cultural discourse that said, oh, Ellie McBeal represents some kind of new iteration of femininity or something in the way mm-hmm. that like Murphy Brown once did in maybe yeah. the 80s. Um, is it too that it's kind of, it is a woman in the workplace drama? Yeah. Or it's kind of a comedy right. drama, right? I looked it up. This is based on my uh, three minutes of research, but it was described it as something like, you know, she's she's got this lawyer job, but she's trying to balance it or handle her life in work and in love or, you know. Yes, yes. Kind of have Can she have it all? Can uh, she have it all? Yes. And if I recall, like, there's a whole thing with her wanting a baby, like there's a dancing CGI baby I think hmm. that was anyway, I'm going to revision and regret the hell out of this next time. But um, <laughs> it is really interesting that he invokes it kind of in the, I guess, like corporate media speak of gender, gender politics. It's like, um, you know, there's not much like history of feminism or gender oppression or anything like that. You know, it's these kind of buzzwords. And uh, yeah, uh, so that I mean, that's interesting because I really was fascinated by the admission of Jan that she's like, yeah, part of the reason I'm here is to basically cultivate um, talent, you know, for corporate. Uh, So it's not really the, uh, you know, it's not about building like uh, gendered solidarity in the workplace necessarily. I mean, maybe, but. That's a great point. (laughs) Yeah. She doesn't find anyone though. You don't think Pam has a shot with the... Until she finds Pam, I guess. Because in that interview, I think it's before she has discovered that Pam has a dream that is fitting of the kind of thing that she can get behind. That's true. That's true. So, okay. So we've talked Michael's Michael's response. (laughs) Let's talk about Dwight's response. (laughs) And then we can get into the into the conference room and the uh, seminar itself. So Dwight, they're like sitting outside and Dwight is talking to Jim, watching them in the conference room. And he's saying them all in there together. If they stay in there too long, they're going to get on the same cycle, wreak havoc on the plumbing. And I guess, what did you think about Dwight's reaction? I mean. (laughs) Like, how does he see what happens when women, I don't know, get together? It is very interesting that he sees women. Okay, so Michael sees it as a secret. Um, they're talking in secret. And, yes. and and he's worried they're talking about him. Dwight sees women as essentially um, bodies that menstruate. Like, yes. <laughs> um, 
re- reproductive objects or something like that. I don't know, but it, I got to tell you though that it was so funny. You know, as a as a line reading, um, it was just very amusing uh, that he thinks it's the reason he thinks is a terrible idea. Yeah. Is, and also, he's like worried about the building, the infrastructure. Like, yes, such a weird. That is so so right on for Dwight. Yes, thinking about women in terms of reproductive systems and plumbing systems. So I also I also looked up, I was like, what is the what is the origin of that idea about you know women living together yes, and yes. getting on the same period cycle? So I found some information from the Cleveland Clinic that I would share. So it says that this stems from a 1971 study published in Nature. And it's now, it's called the menstrual synchronization myth, also mm-hmm. called the McClintock effect. So it's from that 1971 study, which suggests that pheromones or other factors can influence and shift periods for women who live together. Mm-hmm. So the study was at Wellesley College. It had 135 students, but the results of that have been long questioned and it's not legit. Um, it says that while a few studies had similar findings, many who duplicated Martha McClintock's study think there were methodological errors as well as statistical errors in the analysis. Throughout the decades, numerous studies have been debunking this myth over and over, including a 2006 human nature study that showed that menstrual cycles don't align reliably after a year of living together. Uh, so it is from it is from a scientific study, but not one that was good. So I just thought that was interesting where it came from, you know, that it wasn't just a kind of popular cultural myth, that it was a science myth. I remember, I don't know what it was that sparked me down the path of reading about that as well, not too long ago. Like I was in a group of people and somebody brought that up and we were like, that can't be true. Is that true? And then I remember reading some of that and so one question I had for you is like, is that a thing you had heard a lot about like growing up or in college or, you know, like how does that myth circulate? Like in what way does it circulate? Oh, uh, that's a good question. In I definitely, I definitely had heard that before. And I don't remember very specifically the context um, of where it was, but it's definitely one of those things I feel like that you sort of hear occasionally. And I do think that people believe it. And it was one of those things where I always thought that doesn't really seem accurate, but I don't really know. So I'll go look into it. But it said, as I was, as I was reading some about it too, it said that basically, you know, because (laughs) this, (laughs) this might this is going to be a big revision and sure. <laughs> but basically it was saying that, you know, if the, if the menstrual cycle for some people is like 28 days and it's right. five day periods. And for some people it's more like 26 days and it's three day periods or something like that. Like they will overlap right. times because right. it's not the same. And so then it says, what is that? Like the, there's something, some kind of bias, memory bias, or I, I can't remember what it is, but they say that you'll remember the times when there is overlap. And so then it makes you believe it when actually it's just a kind of coincidence of occasional overlap and not synchronization. 
It is fascinating. I mean, I think it's fascinating because I because I remember reading a little bit about that too, and I can't, you know, I'll probably revise and regret this as well, but, <laughs> but like there's something, you know, there's only X number of days in a month, right? And like there's only yeah. X number, you know, so there's like a kind of statistical probability that it might yeah. fall, you know, something like that. And I'm like, oh, right. Yes. I never really thought about that. And then you project like co- causation onto that correlation. Yes. Yes. But I also think it's interesting that people wanted to believe that it was true. Like it's interesting mm-hmm. that it comes out in the seventies in a moment of second wave feminism that was very oh, much yeah. organized around um, a kind of universalizing ideology of womanhood that woman is a thing that is rooted in biology that stands outside of race and class and um context and all of that and that therefore if that's true the idea was i guess you know that you can kind of um create the grounds for solidarity around this biological category um so you know, you would want to believe the myth because it would sort of suggest like, oh, if we all got together, our bodies know that we are, you know, connected in this way. But yeah. I also like this example because it proves once again that social science creates just as many problems as it claims to solve. So why do they get all of the funding and the humanities <laughs> over here? We get such a bad rap for, you know, um, you know, being too qualitative and not quantitative enough. But Who's, who's causing the real damage? I will revise and regret this later. Uh, um, <laughs> I was also going to kind of tag it ahead of time with a revision and regret. Remembering <laughs> that, um, that I do teach and study literature and writing and not biology or any of those, <laughs> any of those things. I feel like I'm getting into explaining some studies that I should not. So just it's take all this. It's a shit. commentary on the show and not as a source of, you know, serious scientific knowledge. Maybe it's a problem with our culture that, mm-hmm. that anyone would go looking to an office review <laughs> podcast for like authoritative knowledge of for truth about like <laughs> science or whatever. Uh, so really, like, who's to blame in that? Who is to blame? That's fair. Um, That's fair. Um, but, but going back to the show. Um, um, we've got Michael creating his alternative. Yes. And I just think it's so funny that the thing he has them do is clap, uh, and make noise. (laughs) Thoughts? (laughs) What? I don't know. What is he doing there? Is he just creating the enthusiasm that doesn't yet exist? Is it sort of like, you know, the saying that if you smile, you will become happier. Is it sort of like if, you know, if you laugh, you will feel better, even if you didn't have the trigger for laughter? Is it kind of like if you clap the, I don't know, celebratory vibe will come or something? Oh, I love that idea. I mean, he definitely is. He he wants praise and he wants to be (laughs) in charge. I mean, I I was kind of curious if you thought this was, um, I don't know, allegory might be too strong a word, but does does Michael's actions are they meant to represent a certain kind of like uh, man um, who like yeah responds to gender equality or debates about feminism or whatever you know, even like a kind of 
I wouldn't even call this like separatism, but even just the hint of, um, hmm. of that women have like distinct issues that they might want to talk about in the workplace or whatever. Um, like, is he meant to represent how like a certain kind of man will respond or maybe men in general will respond to that with like, um, you know, resentment and a need to like prove that, oh, actually men are oppressed. Men are mm -hmm. the real ones here. Cause he says here like, why can't boys play with dolls? And in my favorite line, uh, <laughs> and I'm going to argue, I don't, I think it Michael might be onto something here. Why does society force us to use urinals when sitting down is far more comfortable? I think it's yes. a good question worth asking, but. I think um, it's a great <laughs> question. And this actually came up with my brother the other night. He really? This is something he has taken on as part of the pandemic <laughs> from home has been sitting down to pee. And he said, there's no going back. He said that, you know, if he were to be back at work in an office, like, he would not do it in public, but um, he definitely agreed with Michael that it is far more comfortable. I don't think he perceived <laughs> it as a form of male oppression like Michael does, but. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Um... But Michael is, the interesting thing is he's kind of right. Like there's something from feminism, I think, that he is using well sort of <laughs> yes about, you know like questioning fundamentally what it is the gender means and does it mean anything to be a man like what are those boundaries about whether you sit and stand and who plays with dolls and who doesn't right but he, you know he he's definitely using it in service of something strange that's a I really want to think more about that because I think you're that's a really interesting point. Like if he, even if he comes at it from a place of kind of like reaction, mm -hmm. he does accidentally get something right from feminism <laughs> or, of, you know, or about the social construction of gender and the idea yeah. that like, yeah, actually no boys should be able to play with dolls and all this kind of stuff. Like, it's just that he chooses the time, like he's not invested in that. He's invested in disrupting their meeting so he can you know have the attention or whatever yes. um and i you know i don't want to move to, i mean oh my god we're gonna take forever on this episode but like jan is making a really good point right before this where she's saying you know assertiveness is perceived differently men who are assertive will be admired um you know uh uh what else does she mention um well, later on, she talks about kind of gendered metaphors, you know, I mean, it is like, uh, an, it's interesting, like she is layering in some, some feminist points about like, yes. how the assumed masculinity of the, and, and patriarchy assumes a certain kind of masculinity and privileges it in workspaces, and it would mm -hmm. be important to disrupt it. Um, although nobody in the office seems that committed to disrupting any of it <laughs> yeah you're so right and actually she and Michael I feel like are sort of parallel in that way where they have they're making some they're both making some good points and I think like for example the way that assertiveness is perceived and interpreted for men or, and women I think that's actually a really interesting thing and an important thing, but for some reason, when Jan talks about it, it just becomes so miserable. I, I don't know 
what it is. And maybe it's the way that it all becomes, I guess we could talk about what Jan's feminism is. And it might right. be the way that it's all toward this kind of corporate feminism that is about understanding those issues of assertiveness and understanding the sports metaphors so that women can lean in to use the Mm -hmm. phrase and advance within the corporate world, you know, so that she can get other women too, who could advance within that system. But yeah, for both of them, I'm like, you're, you're saying some right things, but there's just something about it that, (laughs) please. Yeah. It's not even like liberal feminism, which would sort of argue we need to assimilate to the existing structures and then we can change them from within or something, right? It's like neoliberal feminism, mm-hmm. which is basically like we should assimilate, we can do them just as well as men can do. And so we'll mm-hmm. just learn how to play the game without any kind of like questioning of how those norms connect to other norms like class or race, mm-hmm. or even the idea that we might want to like change those norms. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and but of course, as you're suggesting, like to do to do any of that would mean having to rethink the relationship between um, gender norms and profit, <laughs> which, of course, like is not going to happen in the workplace. I don't. Yeah, I don't know. It would be I, I haven't made I haven't, I don't know. Well, yeah, well, we'll definitely get to that with the unionizing. But part of the reason it's kind of gross is Jan, like then she looks to Pam and it's like, be the secretary. Like there's no reflectiveness on her part about the about the gender norms and assumptions already in the room and then she's so annoyed at their desires for yes like um yeah I was kind of curious how you interpreted that like her she seems really irritated at their yearnings for like a nice house or whatever yeah I wanted I wanted to talk about that let me see I put um some of that dialogue somewhere so in their discussion of their goals Meredith says in five years I'd like to be five years sober and Jan says that's an excellent goal Meredith four and a half first <laughs> I really enjoy it how Meredith revises yeah. that down. <laughs> uh, she doesn't want to make that change right away but then Kelly says I'll tell you one thing I am not going to be one of those women schlepping her kids around in a minivan And that's where Jan kind of gets excited. She's like, great, uh uh-huh. But then she learns more. Kelly says, I want an SUV with three rows of seats. And Jan, so then they, so they have that, the talk that's about their goals. They talk later in terms of their dreams. And Jan tells them, you know, I think you need to focus more on your careers and less on your personal lives. And she just is so judgmental about the things that they want. Mm-hmm. And so with Kelly, it feels like there's also this really kind of conventional idea about where feminism is supposed to lead us. And like it's supposed to lead you away from being a mom who drives her kids around. So the Jan's excited when Kelly doesn't want a minivan, but then not when she wants an SUV. And that might be like, that is Kelly's desire and that is what she wants. It feels like the thing for Jan, there's this one path and dreams then have to be channeled into 
work and into dream jobs and into some kind of labor, which would mean, you know, climbing the corporate ladder or whatever, those become the legitimate feminist goals and for Jan at least. Uh, And so it ends up creating this really, this, I don't know, the sort of structure of being really judgmental of women who do not have that same kind of goal. This is a thing that comes up sometimes when I'm teaching kind of like, you know, gender studies classes or, or feminist theory or whatever. And, um, and I, I'm kind of curious if you've confronted this too, but like, I, sometimes I'll have students be like the real problem with them. That's the real problem is that Mm -hmm. feminists, they'll like blame feminism for making people feel bad about wanting to quote unquote, like just be a mom or to do whatever was a kind of conventional idea primarily for like white middle-class women or something Uh like that, you know? And I'm like, right. Yeah, absolutely. Like the goal of feminism has to be bigger than just, um, assimilating to, you know, um, the patriarchal labor, labor market. But at Mm -hmm. the same time, like, it's also not just about (laughs) like everybody gets to choose what they want to do, and yeah. we all accept it and good, you know, and I, and I always feel like it's a tough, it's a tough, I don't know, you know, it's, it's interesting that this episode is kind of like stumbling towards it. Mm-hmm. I, and I, I don't know how to ask it, but like how does, but does the show have like a, a response or a theory? I mean, part of me makes me, part of it makes me think no, because the show is always snarking about corporate labor, right? Like mm-hmm. jobs are soul crushing. And so Jan's desire to climb the corporate ladder, it's not necessarily like looking down on it because it's selling out feminism, but it's looking down on it because it's like, just like Michael is like, ew, like your whole life is this pointless, meaningless labor that doesn't fulfill you in any kind of way. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, like the show doesn't seem to really perceive domestic or interpersonal relationships as somehow the fulfillment that's not offered by corporate work. Right. So like Kelly's, it doesn't seem like it views Kelly's vision as with any (laughs) kind of hope either. Right. Like, um, so is it just this kind of Gen X or I guess, or late millennial? um, I, everything is bullshit. (laughs) <laughs> you know what I mean like uh, is there really a yeah. politics there yeah um you're right because it does not seem to posit Kelly's desire for an SUV as being <laughs> the answer and even you know Pam who says I want a husband who I love Roy right. and we know that Roy is disappointing we at the same time have so if that is her dream if she has a more relationship-based dream rather than the corporate dream. So we see if Jan tests out the feminist dream of labor, Kelly points out how can, so, she asks, how can someone so beautiful be so sad? Yes. And so I think that she really picks up on something in Jan, even as she's trying to sort of harass, isn't the right word, but she's like needling Jan about the Michael situation but she picks up on that sadness in her. So I think there we see that for Jen, even this thing that she is suggesting is the right kind of dream for women, that's wrong. Like that does not 
the dream of labor, the dream of kind of advanced labor doesn't work. But we see Roy talking about women and talking about Pam. And so we see that that is definitely not a successful path here either. So I don't know. I think, I mean, the reason I'm kind of curious, or I'm glad we're underlining this now is because where the show goes with Pam and Jim's relationship becomes problematic for me. Hmm. Uh, if I recall, I don't really recall super well, but like that, that has always been a sticking point for me. It's like, if the show makes basically like heteronormative love into the thing that compensates you for the alienation of hmm. class and, uh, and everything else, um, because the show seems to be aware at other times that it doesn't compensate, you know? And of course the answer is like, oh, you just need to find the, your person. That's always the answer. It's like find the authentic romantic um fulfillment in your personal life and the problem with Roy is that it's inauthentic um that he's not really supportive of her he doesn't really love her or whatever but at the same time like he does it's not just that he's an asshole like he represents like the majority of patriarchy right like it's like I don't want to listen to women's problems so somebody else needs to listen to those and they're pointless anyway and like and I do want to quash women's dreams um, because they threaten me in some way, you know what I mean? Like, so it's not just that he's a douche. He's like, he is a, he is a part of the, part of the ideological structure. I mean, I guess we would have to talk about how Jim is too, but, um, should we, well, okay. So if you wanted to argue that the episode has a kind of pointed critique, it does seem, and I'm, and I, or I don't know if I believe this, but it mm-hmm. seems like it's saying corporate is going to offer a kind of um, uh, cynical identity politics, hmm. but its ultimate yeah. goal is to just generate new profit from that, from the labor that it extracts out of these seminars. Mm-hmm. Um, but the potential for unionizing is a real class exploitation-based solidarity. And the minute like it, there's a whiff of it and it's also a potentially cross-gendered one right like because the warehouse as we discover is not only men um and it's uh it's a multiracial space etc so um and not for nothing a, a black man is in charge of that space uh-huh. and keeping people safe or whatever so um the minute the possibility of real solidarity emerges it has to be destroyed um mm-hmm. I don't know what it means that Michael is the one who accidentally provokes it (laughs) other than that he's an idiot. Um, But yeah, I was kind of wondering if you thought, is it pitting class versus gender or is it saying, oh, there's like a version of gender politics that could be class-based versus one that isn't? Hmm. I got a couple of things. I feel like that makes me think in a couple of directions. And one of them is I want to find the quote when Michael is setting up his thing down in the warehouse and he suddenly realizes that there's a woman there, uh, Madge. Okay. So he set up his gripe session. He is circling up the people in the warehouse he has his tie off now and his shirt is unbuttoned. 
by the way, we're going to have to go back because there are things that we're missing that we've got to talk about, like when they go down the stairs into the warehouse. But anyway, once they're there, he's got this circle and Michael says, so guys, gripe session. Here we are. Now, we definitely live in different worlds, but we have a lot in common. We even like the same girls, some of us. That's going to happen, you know, we're guys, so. And then we notice, kind of like, is sort of in the background, but Madge, the woman who works in the warehouse, says, hey, do you want me to go? <laughs> and Michael says, no, why? Why would I? You could, and she goes. <laughs> so, where was I going with that? I have almost entirely forgotten. <laughs> but I think one of them was that the, gosh, I've lost it. I'll get the second one. <laughs> the second thing I wanted to talk about, I guess, was the way that I think eliminating the class divide or kind of erasing or sidelining the class divide does seem to depend on talking about women. So like male yeah. bonding and griping about women is used, I think, to kind of hold the system together and to eliminate class conflict. So as soon as you know the things about the union come up and Michael wants, but he, what he wants to talk about is what bothers us as guys. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, what is it that bothers us about women that he keeps wanting to direct the conversation to that? is to come to one cut to a gender conflict rather than a class conflict. That is so interesting. Well, first, I love that you brought up Madge because I felt like, well, for, it's just hilarious. It, like that's an actor who can steal a scene with like one line when, when she's like, do you want me to go? I'm going to go. Uh, it was so funny. And, and I do feel like she's kind of meant to be the mirror of Toby. Like Toby's included mm. Uh, by default, he's like, you're kind of a guy. And then when you go down to the warehouse, he stays behind me, you know? So uh-huh. it almost feels like the best you can hope to do at work is what, um, oh, who says it? Uh, um, who's the, per- who's the character that says, uh, just run out the clock? Um, Stanley. Stanley says, it. yeah. Stanley's like, this the clock situation. doesn't say it to the temp, to Ryan, Ryan. I, okay. Yeah. Yeah, he's like, this is a run out the clock situation. I feel like they all recognize like none of this is actually about us, the workers. This is all mm-hmm. about the the kind of either Michael's ego or Jan's, you know, and the and the corporate's like search for whatever it is they're searching for. So I really love that you brought up Madge. And then the second thing, yeah, it's interesting because so what starts Roy is ready to complain about women. Mm-hmm. And um, and his complaint is about spending money um and then uh and Dwight jumps in on that he's like and then they want you to drive them to church like gas ain't free (laughs) um but all of this too is like like I can imagine right like a feminist a radical feminist especially being like yeah the problem here is uh like not um like women it's the structure of of patriarchy and class relations that Mm -hmm. support this idea that you know men are supposed to pay for things because it's a it's a system that assumes heterosexuality Mm -hmm. and then it assumes a version of heterosexuality where there is like economic inequality because men are supposed to be providers and women are supposed to be provided for whatever you know blah 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 right so Mm -hmm. it's like they're they're blaming women for that but they didn't design the system and um (laughs) 
but yeah, like I, I, it's so interesting that that then sparks Daryl to be like, well, wait a minute, you can't understand our pain. You say you understand it because you're a dude, but actually the thing that divides us is we don't have the same amount of money and, and no benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, I love that this is happening with Michael's unbuttoned shirt. Uh, now, how do we feel about Steve Carell's chest hair? Because I have to tell you, it was at this point when my uh, my Carell orientation, I I was awoken to it. I really was like, oh, what? yeah, I have a real thing for for like a like a hairy <laughs> chest. I have always, oh, not only do I wish I had chest hair like Michael does in that scene. But like I have always been drawn to men who have it, and I'm curious where you land on the on the hairiness. Oh my god! Is this the thing that breaks the podcast? Is it? Let me tell you. Actually, I think I had. How do you feel about the Hasselhoff? I find that so off-putting. And actually, I remember when I. Yeah. No, No, this is a this is a a hard stop for me on the presses. But I remember working when I worked at Starbucks, sometimes the district manager would come in and the district manager didn't wear the regular uniform. He wore, you know, a button down shirt and khakis or whatever. And I remember sitting with him in the back room to talk about something. I can't remember what, but he just would have his shirt buttoned inappropriately low and the chest hair coming out. And so Michael just really takes me right back to that time. And I think it is hilarious and it is ridiculous and it is awful. But when he, when he buttons it up and he doesn't have a tie, but he just has the open shirt. Now that I was kind of like, okay, this, this is a good look for you. No tie, but unbuttoned shirt. But once it goes down, no, you don't need to see. I want to see a little bit of the chest hair. You know what I mean? I want to, What's what's the problem with the chest hair for you? Is it it's too uh you want to do you want to you want your men sleek like a seal? Is that what you want? <laughs> I like uh, I'm gonna revise and regret that uh, <laughs> sexual orientation towards seal bodies. <laughs> it's not even actually my level of disgusted that is not even is there hair or is there not hair? It's that level of chest exposure. Oh, oh, it's the exposure. It's not the hair. Okay. Even if he had, even if it was, if it was hairless, I would think that would be a terrible look too. No, I mean, just I will, yeah. work, Michael. Keep it buttoned up. This is not the beach. Fair enough. Keep your shirt fully on, please. I feel as if okay. So it's it's funny. It's really funny because Michael is trying to like assert his masculinity. He perceives the warehouse like it's a really interesting. We've talked about this before, but like kind of commentary on how um, labor is gendered, right? And like the closer mm-hmm. it is to like supposedly manual labor or working class labor, it's understood as masculine. Yeah. Um, and so he's trying to reclaim his masculinity here. But I will just say, like, a I love I love the chest hair, and then B I am, um, you know, there's not a lot of opportunities I feel like in popular culture for male bodies to be like. Well, that's not true. We get a we get one kind of eroticized male body, and it is the mm-hmm. sleekly, uh, uh, like no chest hair, um, superhero body. You know, it's like mm-hmm. the eight pack taking human growth hormone, um, it, but like completely sexless too. It's like all like it's the Marvel superhero male body. They mm-hmm. love taking like comedians like Chris Pratt and Kumail Nanjiani or whatever. 
like yeah. juicing them up giving them an eight pack and then these characters are so sexless like they don't have sex and nobody in the movies eroticizes them or desires them really it's hmm. just like they they have a scene where they take off their shirt and they're kind of oiled up and then that's it you know so i'm just saying i'm, I'm here for like more eroticizing of of men's bodies uh and um and i feel like chest hair should be a part of it yeah that's fair uh, i think that's a very i think that's a very legitimate point however the context has an effect for me. All right, fair enough, fair enough. I yeah, and I love that he buttons it back up. He has to button it up because he's embarrassed. Yes, it is. Oh, yeah, because who is it? Lonnie, who calls him Hasselhoff? Yes. David Hasselhoff. He was on, what was that show called? That beach show? Uh, uh, Baywatch, yeah, Lonnie Baywatch. says, you know what? That's yeah. a good question, Hasselhoff. What bugs us? Michael is mocked there and he's also mocked with his face on the blow up doll. I was kind of curious mm -hmm. why why do you think he's able to avoid uh kind of um collapsing into um insecurity like he does with the carpet episode. Like what is it that keeps his his why is he more resilient here? That's a good question. He really is resilient. Michael shows some serious grit in this episode. It's so, so back to the, the shirt, like I, I want to talk about the kind of erotic sort of borderline sexual dynamics of some of what's happening down here. One, his face being on a blow up doll that's turned backwards. You're right. And the shirt that like when he comes and he's creating this bond with men that part of it involves becoming more undressed. Mm. he doesn't become more undressed in the office with women right might at a later point but um <laughs> but here, yeah so he doesn't that's not a thing with women but that's in his bonding with men that his chest becomes exposed so i just felt like there's something there's just something really interesting going on here now, you had mentioned at the top uh we were kind of prepping uh that you were interested in the homosociality kind of in this episode. And I remember that was a mm -hmm. thing we were talking about a bit last time. Um, yeah, I was kind of curious if you wanted to say anything about that here, because this is definitely where we see, like Madge, is it is that her name, Madge? She has yeah, to, yeah. to sort of solidify this masculine um, bond yes. across class um, that of the joke and the irony being that Michael <laughs> essentially agrees to a union um mm -hmm. but they're chanting for him and they're and they're they're kind of solidified together as men um or whatever yeah i was kind of curious what you were thinking about with homosocial the homosocial yes so i was thinking about that just as a a term that's come up for us a few times and when we got to this episode i was like oh this is the ultimate of that and to be a complete nerd about it, I brought a quote from yes. a theorist of the homosocial, Eve Sedgwick, and she uses the term male homosocial desire. And so I wanted to read this because I feel like it it's helpful to give us the, I don't know, some, some context sort of for the concept. And I thought it might help us think about what's happening here. So let me read this and then you can respond. So... Sedgwick says this, homosocial desire to begin with is a kind of oxymoron. Homosocial is a word occasionally used in history and the social sciences 
where it describes social bonds between persons of the same sex. It is a neologism, obviously formed by analogy with homosexual, and just as obviously meant to be distinguished from homosexual, so substituting social for the sexual. In fact, it is applied to such activities as male bonding, which may, as in our society, be characterized by intense homophobia, fear, and hatred of homosexuality. To draw the homosexual the homosocial back into the orbit of desire. So when she puts those two words together, homosocial and desire, um, she says, let's see, to draw it back into the orbit of desire of the potentially erotic then is to hypothesize the potential unbrokenness of a continuum between homosocial and homosexual, a continuum whose visibility for men in our society is radically disrupted. So part of what stands out to me there is this idea of homosocial desire, when she says that it puts it on, it puts the social and the sexual on a continuum. So the thing that seems like very heterosexual male bonding takes on a kind of erotic charge, or it puts it on a continuum with sex rather than being something that is fundamentally separate from it. Right, right. And so I felt like we really have that we've noticed in a lot of cases, there being this kind of erotic charge in the way that Michael responds, the way that he interacts with Ryan. I'm remembering back to when they're in the parking lot and in the fire episode, and he's sitting in the back seat with Ryan and kind of sweaty and sort of breathily talking to him. Yes, yes. And we've got yeah. Michael's face on the blow up doll in the warehouse. We've got him getting shirtless and like getting sexier, yes. which clearly worked on you in <laughs> this uh, context where he's trying to establish these connections among men. I think, I mean, it's such a helpful point that you're bringing up because it explains, you know, when Daryl tries to say like, let's form the union, he says, Michael says, the problem is the chicks and you yeah. got to blame them. Um, mm -hmm. And he says something, uh, oh, before that, he says, is that necessary? Because you already sort of have a union of guys. Um, yeah. And I think that a union of guys would be a great way to think about this, the homosocial <laughs> bonds that he's trying. Yeah, to a union of guys. Assert and to assimilate into. And then the idea that you, to, to solidify it, you need to blame something else or oppose it to something else. And so in Michael's case, it's the chicks, quote unquote. Um, but in everyday context, right, it's often like saying no homo or... Um, you know, uh, or, or punishing, you know, any kind of uh, potential femininity that could be read as homosexuality. Like, I think yeah. the, the reason I've always thought Sedgwick's like point is so useful to see that like, oh no, actually there's like a continuum between, we could call it a queer continuum between mm -hmm. homosexual and homosocial, that there's like erotics between them is that that helps explain why homosexual spaces have to be so rigidly policing to mm -hmm. keep out the homosexual it's like because what's so dangerous like what would be so dangerous if you have as you always have you know gay people in homosocial spaces well suddenly yeah. um the butt slapping and the nudity and the whatever take it, the charge that was always there becomes revealed for the eroticism that it is and erotic in the sense yeah. that forging some kind of 
corporeal affective bonds. Um, yes. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. It would be interesting to see how a, a show today would deal with that. Cause I do like, I feel that masculinity has tried to adapt in some ways to include more capacity to say, I love you in male friendships and, and more, it, we, you know, we see shows sort of having homosocial spaces with gay people in them. On the other hand, I also feel like masculinity's gotten much worse <laughs> and more toxic. Uh, so yeah, it would be interesting to see how this story would be told now. I don't know. Yeah. That so the language, right? Like the language in this whole conversation is so strongly heteronormative that it has to assume that the thing to complain about is women. And meanwhile, we have learned that Oscar is gay or Oscar right. is at least lives with a man, right. um, has a relationship. Yeah, that doesn't even come up here. Like that. And the other, the other characters don't know. Right. So that can't come up. Right. But you're, like, like you're saying though, it also on another level, it can't come up. Like that right. needs to not be one of the sexualities that is there in that space. And there's another moment too, when Michael is kind of feminized when, uh, let's see, Daryl says, so it really bothers me. This is when Michael's asking what bothers us as guys. And Daryl is talking about his priority being safety. So Daryl says, it really bothers me when someone comes in here, speeding around on a lift, playing with it like it's a toy. It kind of gets under my skin. And Michael <laughs> says, okay, yeah, 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 shh. And then Daryl says, uh-uh-uh, don't shush me. And Michael tries to kind of put it off. But then Roy says, Pam shushes me. It drives me crazy. And so it turns into this conversation about like women shushing. Yeah. And, and so I feel like Michael was also sort of put in that kind of feminine killjoy sort yes. of yes. role in some way. I the show is, okay, whether or not the show has a politics or not, whether or not it's commenting or critiquing or acknowledging, but, you know, whatever, it does understand that, like, there is a perception in contemporary culture that power is actually feminine, not hmm. masculine. And, like, Jan is empowered. She is the most powerful character in this episode. Like, mm -hmm. she comes down. She's, I love when she's like, I'm good at public speaking. And then we see her be really good at public speaking. She squashes. Oh, you're right. I didn't think about that. Me. Yeah. Um, and then when Michael, like, tries to assert power, he's he's perceived as a castrating woman. Like, a mm -hmm. woman who shushes men. And I don't know. Like, it would be really interesting to bring up the, the Hillary Clinton of it all. You know, it's, like, hmm. so interesting to me, you know, like, in a, in a misogynistic culture, people attribute all this power to women even though they are systemically denied or like you know um yeah denied mm -hmm. it or punished for having it or or trying to assert it you know mm -hmm. i don't know it, it it it's really interesting that they compare him to pam in that moment um yeah the because if he aligns with jan if he aligns himself with a woman's power then he loses all of his manpower or man yeah. bonding, but the way that they in the warehouse also kind of claim some power over Michael is by putting his face on a blow up doll and is by like in that kind of 
there's like a sort of it's it's playful and it's funny and it's a joke but also there's a sort of sexual power threat there yeah yeah right i mean it's a is the blow doll gendered is it supposed to be a woman i think it is right yeah yeah it is and it's the gender doll it's the it's the um blow up doll that michael brought in on the uh gosh what day what was that called sexual harassment episode yeah that's right that's interesting. So it's ended up in the warehouse. Remember, he threw it out of the office. Like he brought it out and he just threw it out into the hallway. And I guess one of the warehouse people picked it up and brought it down That's so and kept it. Um, the way the episode cuts back and forth between these two quote unquote seminars or gatherings is very yes. interesting too. Yeah. Um, and especially as um, Michael goes upstairs. So like, you know, she's talking about pay inequality between men and women. That's when he interrupts to talk about the union. Yes. Um, uh, there is a lot of just funny stuff I wanted to read into the record, like, mm-hmm. uh, or not funny, but, you know, also biting. Like he calls her hysterical um, when she says, what, a union? Um, and then he's like, part of my job is knowing how to talk to women. Let's be rational. But of course, like all of this is in response to a problem he's created. But it's just so funny to me. He's like, what are the pros? What are the cons? She's like, cons. Everyone will lose their job, Michael. Everyone. Office, warehouse. What do you think the pros are here? Um, it's just very, very good writing. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, I don't know. It's it's just interesting that it, like, here's a real example of a pay inequality th- that would to to raise it and discuss it threatens the order in a way that the pay inequality she's talking about with the women in the workplace are is not threatening and i hmm. I, I don't know i was kind of curious about that because there's a class divide between her and the women in her seminar and there's a class divide between the women in the seminar pam is paid significantly less than sales we don't really know but accounting and sales seem maybe equivalent. I don't know. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. I was just kind of curious about why you can talk about pay inequality in one context, but not in another. Yeah. You know what? So with Michael down in the warehouse, the gender gripes are supposed to kind of eliminate the class conflict. And I think I'm wondering if in Jan's seminar too, the, um, the idea of the gender bonding kind of neutralizes the class threat there as well because it kind of puts it all it puts them all in it together yeah women so jan may get paid less than men who are in comparable corporate positions right but all women as women are supposed to be fighting for jan to get equitable pay with those people right rather than thinking about the fact that how, you know, how, okay, well, how far apart is the gap between Pam and Jan? But we don't end up thinking about that if we can sort of distribute that idea of the inequality being with men and not between each other. It's really interesting. In a way, this episode is about like how capitalism or the capitalist workspace is like really good at fraying any potential solidarity that would become the grounds for demanding either different working conditions or different wages, right? Like, because mm-hmm. even in the context of the women's seminar, Angela, what does she say? Doesn't she say something like, 
I'm doing great. Uh, I'm not gaining yeah. anything from this seminar. It's an interesting phrase. I'm not gaining anything from uh-huh. this seminar, right? So it's like all in terms of profit, but whatever. I'm yeah. a professional woman, the head of accounting. I'm in the healthiest relationship of my life. I just think it's insulting that Jan thinks we need this. And apparently from her outfit, Jan aspires to be a whore. Um, <laughs> so of course we have Angela's, you know, kind of religious and just bourgeois judgments. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny also because it's pointing out the silliness of and, and kind of simplicity of Jan's advice. Dress for the job you want, not the job you have, as if that'll solve structural or, you know, other gaps. Because um, doesn't she say we have equality of... Um, options but not or but obstacles to them or something like that I can't remember yeah something like that yeah Um, we might have the same options but getting there yeah same options but different set of obstacles right Mm -hmm. and it's like so there's if that were even true you know dressing differently isn't necessarily going to change that situation but Angela is a really good example of like even like you can't have solidarity here (laughs) um and you're not, they're not all coming from the same social position or the same orientations to gender norms, right? Like, because yeah. Angela is super conservative around what femininity is and is supposed to be. Like, she's ready to be the handmaiden to patriarchy, <laughs> I think. Totally, yeah, yeah. So you pointed out Angela's language, that she says she's not gaining anything which brings our attention to what it is that she's expecting or what is each person's expectation for what they would get out of a seminar like this. And it reminded me of Phyllis because Phyllis is excited about it, but she just kind of says, I just love girl talk. Like, so she's not looking to profit from it or to gain something that's really useful necessarily. She is looking for that bonding among women, it seems like. But I don't know. I was wondering if it seems like, what is it that the show ends up saying about gender? Do women have anything in common? And do men have anything in common? Because Phyllis loves girl talk. So Phyllis kind of has the thing, the mindset that, you know, if we get together with a group of women, that we do have some kind of special bond and it enables particular kinds of conversations to happen. Pam. Meanwhile, is asking or is saying, I don't know if I have anything in common with these women. The person I can probably relate to most in the office is, and she doesn't answer it, but then it cuts down to the warehouse and someone is saying Jim's name. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Do you, does it seem to suggest that there, that women do have, that there is a gendered connection? Like women have something in common, men have something in common, or does it not in the way we see these groups actually play out that's a really good question I I don't know I do feel as if um maybe maybe my argument would be that the show sees all kinds of possibility in the in the workspace in general for like Mm -hmm. um potentially interesting social dynamics to emerge um, but there are like fundamental constraints on those possibilities going ever mm-hmm. going anywhere. And those constraints might be because 
um, work in the United States is soul crushing and pointless. <laughs> you know, again, they're just selling paper in a dying industry. Um, or uh, because to, to let those social relations go in any directions that aren't for profit, it'll be shut down or something. I don't, I don't know. Like, I, I feel like the show's ultimate politics is to point out how like fruitless and stupid everything can be, but that, that, Im but that requires a recognition that actually, no, there, there is something potential here. And so I actually, I'm so glad you brought up Phyllis because I think Phyllis is a really good example of that. Like Jan is trying to talk about how women don't often experience like confidence and like there, there should be a space for them to say, try to articulate what you're good at. Okay, yeah. I'm going to start. I'm good at public speaking, right? <laughs> and Phyllis says, I'm good at computer stuff, email spreadsheets. And Angela like immediately undermines her. Really? Yeah. And it's crushing. Phyllis's performance is really good. I don't know. I thought I wasn't going to be asked that. No. Okay, stop. Go on. <laughs> Jan says, Angela, I've seen some of your spreadsheets. And Phyllis, <laughs> like, really? I thought they were pretty, right? And then Pam is like, I don't know how I fit in with these women here or with Jan. Um, I mean, we get along great, fine. Um, I guess the person I have the most in common with is Jim, right? And like, I don't, I don't know. There's something there to me about like, Pam doesn't see, we, Pam like Jim is, is our character to kind of roll our eyes at how everybody is, I don't know, stupid or whatever. But like the, in that moment, Phyllis really is speaking up for herself. And it, we, I do think we're meant to be like, oh, fuck, like, Angela, shut up. Like, Angela, you suck. Yeah. Like, yeah. And Angela is the mechanism of, of crushing her confidence there. So it's not as simplistic, like, as simple as, as men are the problem. And if men weren't there, women could flourish. It's like, no, women are also policing and internalizing gender norms. Yeah. Women are, I don't know. That's as much as I've got. Yeah. That that makes me think too about a little bit later or earlier, I can't remember the sequence, but when Pam mentions that she really likes drawing and illustration and Phyllis just says, looks over to Jan and says, she's real good. And this yes. really just genuine supportive yes. way that was maybe the most touching moment for me. Um, there was just something really kind about that that felt like this yeah. we're talking about that possibility that felt like this little moment of possibility in there maybe like the high point of their seminar that's brilliant that's brilliant wow. and and wow. I love uh, well because it because it kind of is like that would be a that is solidarity right or she's like hey mm -hmm. like boosting her um and doing it in a way that like ends up actually having a, a material potentially material benefit for yeah like, that doesn't yeah. benefit phyllis in any obvious way mm -hmm. um but uh <laughs> we also have the potential for things to be turned around and that's also what i think is very clever because i think i don't know how you feel about this but i i uh, i might revise and regret this but i <laughs> i think you know having sat through a lot of like sexual harassment or um, kind of diversity training in institutional spaces with faculty and staff or whatever, I often, like I sometimes worry that um, the, the form, the context or the form of the mm -hmm. seminar like undermines its content. And so, yes. uh, and I don't like, 
Yeah, like, and I am like, so even if I agree with the values that are being articulated, I'm often concerned that the way in which they're being articulated just produces either like people tuning out and rolling their eyes, it all becomes white noise. Mm -hmm. um, or the fact that, I mean, maybe too, like there's only so, there's like, it's it's just like, they're trying to hold up uh, a sense that they are, they support diversity and inclusion, but they actually aren't, when push comes to shove, they're not gonna put the money towards mm -hmm. it, or they're not willing to restructure the institution in a way that would enable that. So, um, so if you have that attitude that like, yeah, all right, all of this is just bullshit. Um, it's very fucking funny that Kelly is like, so what about second base? That's a sports term or a baseball term, right? <laughs> and like this kind of subversive, she's using the logic of the yes. seminar, but to needle jam and to, and to get her to like, I don't know. I found that a very funny um, moment. Yeah. Yeah. We get a lot of personality coming out from from Kelly there too. I guess one of the other, so there's that potential connection. I, I guess the other thing that, so, so yeah, Pam says she doesn't know what she has in common with these women. And I guess the other thing she has in common with these women is the way that men talk about her in Michael's seminar. So it seems like the most, the biggest commonality that they have in some ways is being a group of people that a group of men get together and talk about mm. and kind of complain about. So it seems in that way, it's almost more about how they get put into a particular kind of position or sort of how they get labeled, how they get talked about. And certainly not that men are the only ones who are unkind or who put them into a place. Angela is certainly great at putting women into their place so to speak. Um, but, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think I ended up feeling like in both, or it showed in both of these groups, how much difference there is within them and how the discussion of gender tries to contain some of those other differences. I think that's such a smart, that's such a smart point. It's like a really good example of how, yeah, like bad, bad gender politics can be really um, corrosive and reactionary, right? Like, and they need to be paired with some kind of institutional critique <laughs> and cross-class, cross-race, cross-nation, um, um, you know, solidarity. Uh, yeah. I thought, oh, go ahead, sorry. No, I was just gonna say speaking, well, why don't you say that in case you're on the same topic? Cause I wanna go to a different place. I was gonna go to the place when uh, Jan comes down and squashes the union. Is that where okay. you going? I was going to when the office people come down to the warehouse. Oh, <laughs> let's go there first. Yeah. Okay. Because this was on your note about the kind of looking at the, the institution and the other hierarchies that there are within it. And so as they are walking down, they go to the top. And so the, the shot is like, there's this overview from kind of on high of all the stuff that's happening at the warehouse as they start coming down the stairs and the music I found out is chameleon air. So it's like, it's oh. rap and there's like all it's, you walk into the, uh, to the warehouse and it's a very different vibe. Yes. So the song is chameleon air Southern takeover. And so some of the lyrics are that the South is taken over. I got dreams to stand on top. 
Mm. And the part that we're actually hearing as they walk in is just look over your shoulder. Let me see who just showed up. It's the Southern takeover. You better tell them I got drinks that stand on top, try and stop, pop, pop, pop. There's like gunshots and stuff. But that idea of the Southern takeover, I just thought that was what a, what a song, like what a choice and what a placement to put there as they walk in the sort of takeover from below. That is brilliant. Oh my God, Megan, I'm so in, I'm in awe of you and your research connections. Uh, That is just so wonderful. The only thing I have to offer is as they walk down, Dwight looks to the camera and says, remember on Lost when they met the others? Yes, (laughs) this is what I was hoping. Have you seen Lost? Yeah, so I was a huge fan Okay, I have not seen Lost. And I was like, I cannot wait because I bet Tyler knows about this. Okay, fill us in, Tyler. Well, so, you know, the premise of Lost is like uh, a group of people on an airplane or the plane crashes and a group of survivors band together to you know, survive. (laughs) And uh, there are dangers and threats on the island. But as the first season, I believe, unfold, I think it's like the climax of the first season or something like that. You know, you think you're they're alone on this island, but it turns out actually like there's another group just like them, the others. Um, And as the, you know, subsequent seasons or at least the second season, as I recall, unfolds, like part of the part of the interesting thing is like sort of seeing a similar but different group dynamics you know it's like here's our mirror doppelganger groups but also there's real differences between them and and in fact um as the the show unfolds they have to kind of like if not work together they you know they're they're constantly in conflict or you know in some dynamic together Hmm. Um, but i just thought that was such a it was like oh my god this totally marks this moment in 2000s popular culture of course it returns us to dwight as as the speaker of nerd culture um culture and uh yeah and it kind of like and it it definitely represents or acknowledges that like because in lost like the 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 moment when the others are revealed was a huge deal and it was the first time um and it was this kind of like revelation that the world is bigger than we seen so far narratively and so I felt like that was also I mean like we've been to the warehouse before but this was this kind of like all of them going down and sort of you know exploration of their their space um yeah I don't know so it's funny but I love chameleon air that that reference is really like really captures the themes too of of um hierarchy and reversal and and uh yes dreams I mean dreams are real big theme here uh, or at least Pam Pam articulates that very much yes you're right and dreams end up getting you're right they're central here and they're complicated here this part and the reference to using that language of the others is specific context but I found that that question this group of people like walking down the stairs so there's like the literal levels and hierarchy yeah. The language of the others, as in what you described, it seems like there's this sort of, I don't know, exotic, unknown people yes. that you're discovering. So there's yes. this kind of colonial feeling dimension to yes. it. Yes. And I think that with rap, like with what's the choice of music you have, it's not Bruce Springsteen. I think that we have a kind of racialization of labor there yes. too, where yeah. the office or the warehouse becomes more associated 
with blackness and with masculinity because Michael's telling them basically that's where the real men work. That's the real man's labor, (laughs) even though there's Madge. That's so interesting. It is. It's also interesting to me too, that like, like to go back to that moment where Stanley is like, this is a run out the clock situation. He's saying that in response to Ryan, the temp and usually Ryan, or I get like to an extent, Ryan voices the, malaise of the of the um of the worker right like he 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 hates this and he's you know it's meaningless to him and all of that um it's just an interesting moment because he kind of gets sucks into he gets sucked into like making he's like oh if we did an assembly line we could do the work faster and better you know which is a kind of capitalist mindset and a an efficiency mindset and like he and I just think it's very interesting that Stanley squashes that you know <laughs> desire to prove like oh we can also do the labor that they do um mm-hmm. yeah and of course we haven't even talked at all about the great comedy of uh, Michael uh, knocking everything over um, oh my gosh fucking yes. up their whole order and then like it's an efficient already efficient great running system and it's safe for so many days, it's been safe, and he ruins all of that. <laughs> and um, and my favorite is the tag on the end of the episode where he's uh, the packing peanuts or become snowflakes. Yeah. <laughs> and I will say it's like that's you know Michael wants to create wonder and pleasure. Uh, you know that is part of his what makes him charming, and also yeah. he does it in completely inappropriate and counterproductive ways. And oh that's, what gosh, that's so, so smart that it is about creating pleasure and wonder. You're right, <laughs> and great cost. <laughs> yeah, like if only he could redirect that that energy. <laughs> yes, I think that stuff is so funny, and there are levels of it. So I think the first one he does is Daryl has the chalkboard. That's got some, it says do not erase. And it has yes. some sort of layout for like all the people's names assigned to whatever their tasks are coming up. And Michael erases all of that and puts up a math equation. Yeah. Like, uh, 13,574 divided by 8,724 in case there's a Goodwill hunting situation. And someone down here well, doesn't that's interesting. Here. I hadn't realized the analogy I know the Goodwill hunting thing, but I hadn't realized his point is in case one of the laborers is good enough to like basically be promoted upstairs, right? Like, yes, that's the plot of Goodwill hunting is going from yeah. working class to white. He's a, he's a janitor, right? And he yeah. answers this, this math problem Holy that shit. even I think the professors can't solve. Yes. It's like some unsolved math thing. Of course, anyone can, you know either do the long division or take out a calculator and find out that it is 1.5559. But uh, so it's funny because that's an example where Michael has, he's using a reference and he's also just kind of fundamentally not even understanding what the goodwill hunting principle is. It, it can't just be a doable math problem. Right, 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 right. <laughs> but Which also, funny. I was just going to say it like, it's the same thing Jan is doing, right? Like she's looking for exceptional workers, not uh, liberation or whatever. And then similarly, it is the plot of Goodwill Hunting that like the 
you know, the homosocial relationships are in tension with the heterosexual relationships and the heterosexual relationship is classed. So goodwill hunting falls in love with mini driver or, or will hunting does. And then, mm -hmm. um, man, it's so stupid. His last name is hunting. Oh my God. But anyway, that is his last um, name. Yeah. Um, I remember really liking this movie, but anyway, yeah. he, you know, he basically like skips town, leaves, leaves working class Boston to, you know, follow his dreams, both her and white collar were. And mm -hmm. that's the plot of Jim saying to Pam, like, are you just going to be a, a, a secretary forever? You yeah. know, you need to take a chance on something. That's the whole thing that like Ben Affleck and is saying to um, Matt Damon in that movie, like you have to take Whoa. a chance. And um, Tyler, that the real love story of Goodwill Hunting is between Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, as we all know. But also, uh, yeah, like this this episode might be smarter than I thought it was. Oh my god, Tyler, does this intersection of Ben Affleck and Jim make you love Jim more? Did have you I told love you Ben that? Affleck? Right? Have I mentioned that on the podcast? Am I out about that? Yes, you're out about that. All right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. Because <laughs> I feel a lot of shame. I feel less shame about my bisexuality than I do about my desire for Ben Affleck. Like, really, would you feel better if it was for Matt Damon? Oh no. Have I talked about my hatred of Matt Damon? I Matt Damon has made me question my queerness. I'm like, maybe oh, I'm not man. attracted to men because I'm so unattracted to Matt Damon. You have uh, a complicated relationship to those two but so does I the do. association i might just does, like brunettes that might be it <laughs> does the afflectness of jim in that are you just going to be a secretary your whole life or are you going to pursue your dream does that make does that build your attraction to jim because it felt like you were going to go towards saying that was not such a good jim moment well the interest um, no, no no i i do think it's a, a good jim moment in the context of like you know jim but mm -hmm. um the difference is that Ben Affleck is a working class guy. He knows that saying to Matt Damon, um, go follow your dream means that their friendship will be over. Be mm -hmm. not, not because it has to be, but because in heterosexual romance narratives, you can't have friends once you're with a woman, um, <laughs> you're a man. And, but the difference is that Jim, Jim is basically saying, climb up to my class. Like he's saying, leave behind mm -hmm. the working class oh. and come join me in middle-class bourgeoisie you know right like because she is aligned with roy roy would be the ben affleck in the situation oh. class wise but oh. um so i think there's an interesting inversion there um mm. of course there's also the gendered inversion he's saying to a woman follow your dreams follow your employ your career dreams um yeah and to do so would be to like mean le losing her potentially right like leaving town going to corporate you know so so there is something very romantic and selfless about that unless what he really means that when he says take a chance is take a chance on me um <laughs> so more, potentially more going on there what did you think of the of jim's dreams her sense of dreams are just dreams and her choice not to Oh the yeah, what was your thoughts on that? Oh, that was just are we way over time, by the way? What are where we, we are, are way over time? Well, we're we're sticking with it. We're just blowing right. This past. is the content our audience craves. So 
It is. And I'm sorry, I don't know where we could possibly go. <laughs> We're not going to. Maybe the myth of the synchronized menstrual cycle. <laughs> <laughs> no, man, that was crucial content. <laughs> Pant plus, I've got more. I've got another Michael thing I've got to go back to, but. Uh, we haven't even. Yeah, we're. Yeah. Oh, Pam. So she says. A couple things. So when she tells Jim about the internship, she comes out when he has come up to check his voicemail or something. And she says, um, but hey, something kind of cool. There's this internship in graphic design that Jam was telling us about. She made it sound like really great. And Jim says, nice. Well, what's it about, Pam? Um, I think you should do it. That's great. I loved it how he asks, well, what's it about? But then he just immediately says, I think you should do it. Yeah. I just thought it was really so sweet. He was just excited with her. Yeah. For her and not questioning it and just encouraging her which I thought was so sweet and then when she tells Roy about it I thought this was interesting kind of structurally too because we don't actually hear their conversation we just see her showing him the brochure and talking to him and him clearly saying no you're not doing this well and it's her interview so it's just her talking that kind of overlays it so she says Dreams are just that. They're dreams. They help get you through the day. Like that thing about the terrace. It's nice, but um, I don't know. It was just something I read in a book when I was 12. That girl in the book has a terrace outside her bedroom and she planted flowers on it. And I just loved that. Just kind of always stuck with me. And then she'll go on and say, it's impractical. I'm not going to try and get a house like that. Um, They don't even make houses like that in Scranton. So I'm never going to. And then it cuts off and she starts to sort of tear up and just puts her hand over her face. Just, I don't know. I just found it crushing. So sad. I thought the acting was so good. It was really moving. And I thought really powerful seeing the juxtaposition too between Jim and Roy in what they say to her and then also how they make her feel. I think, I mean, I I, I had not thought about this. I think you're so smart. The fact that we don't hear what Roy says is so decisive in Mm -hmm. kind of aligning us with Jim. It would be very interesting if we heard what Roy said, like, and if it was like, um, we we're, we're, how can we afford this? Like, I don't, you know, like, I don't know, or whatever, like we're saving up for the wedding. And like, I just don't see how this is going to work. Is it practical or whatever? You know, I'm not like justifying his point of view, but like by not getting it, it doesn't matter in some sense. Yeah. But to be fair, as you're saying, like the point is less about what the dream is and the fact that Jim affirms it because Mm -hmm. he doesn't even hear what it is, right? Really. Um, So yeah, I I really love it. I also, I mean, of course I was moved by this. I found it very, um, yeah, uh, sweet and, 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 um, or bittersweet, I should say. And, And I think it's kind of interesting how, the show is like, I, I do think the office space, like, okay, so Michael responds to, everybody responds to the soul crushing nature of American capitalism in different ways, right? <laughs> Stanley plays crosswords and runs out the clock. Jim mm-hmm. does pranks, like Dwight wholeheartedly embraces it and wants to be at the top of it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and, uh, 
so oh, oh and 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 Michael he turns it into his family like he personalizes everything yeah right? so he, yeah. that's how he manages the alienation of it or whatever like Pam doesn't she just kind of is cruising along she's incredibly passive and mm-hmm. so it is I kind of like that narratively she is standing in for the ways in which lots of us find ourselves in jobs where we're just kind of going along and we're like okay well you know yeah I dreamed of doing something else but this is where I'm at and you know the benefits are fine and it's good enough but you know to take a risk would be I don't know you you potentially you know you can lose right or something can go wrong Mm -hmm. or whatever I mean, I do think the episode is not as, I mean, this is the the ways in which the show is both insightful and then symptomatic of capitalism. Like it really frames it as you have to invest in yourself. You have to mm-hmm. go out on your own, you know, go out on your own, work on the weekends so that you can get that next job or whatever. But at the same time, it also frames it as less alienated labor, right? It's like, she would be using the artistic skills that satisfy her. On the other hand, it's not being an artist, right? It's like, oh, I could be a graphic designer. Yeah. But on the other hand, she could get those skills and then leave Dunder Mifflin. I don't know. This is the problem of capitalism, right? It's like mm-hmm. you can't, you always have to sell your labor <laughs> in a way that is marketable. Um, so yeah. how else do you escape? Uh, anyway, I, I, maybe I found it better, bittersweet for that reason too. Mm-hmm. Right. It feels like she, in contrast to some of the others, hasn't quite figured out what her strategy is, or she doesn't have a strategy for coping in the same way. Because I feel like you really are clearly articulated. Stanley's strategy is run out the clock. Michael's strategy is make a family. Jim's strategy is do pranks. She doesn't seem to have that kind of pinned down. And so then she can get excited about this possibility, but she also can be dissuaded really quickly as soon as Roy doesn't support it. I was wondering what you made of near the end. uh, Well, of course we get the very amusing pizza, the great equalizer. Um, (laughs) Love that. But when they're eating pizza, he says, uh, sometimes Jan can be such a bitch. They say, yeah. And he says, Hey, watch it, watch it. We have a relationship. Mm -hmm. I'm curious what, um, how you interpreted that moment. Yeah. The, it felt like sometimes Jan can be a bitch part seemed like an example of how talking to be with men, talking about women can be a way and create talking negatively can be a way of creating a bond. And maybe it doesn't have to be women specifically. I mean, bitch is a gendered term, but it could be just that it's in opposition to corporate or in opposition to the authority, like having some other to talk badly about and criticize and distance yourself from because they're kind of agreeing with him. I feel like in that moment, he's got the pizza. People are liking the pizza. He confirms that black people do indeed like pizza, which he had asked the pizza delivery person when he got concerned that maybe it wasn't the great equalizer. Maybe he didn't know, but everybody's eating. Everyone seems kind of happy with that. And I think that he's getting them. I think that sometimes Jan can be such a bitch it works. I think it's reestablishing a place of agreement and it can pit him with the unionization movement against Jan and against corporate. But I feel like maybe it's that 
he's sort of torn between these things that are these relationships that are meaningful to him and to his identity. So being a man and being a part of the warehouse is important to him. Also being a man and having a relationship with Jan is part of who he wants to be. And so maybe it's like something you said before about goodwill hunting, you know, like you have a relationship with a woman or you have friends and you don't have both. Mm, mm. That's, I think you've said it beautifully. I don't know that I have anything to add to it. I think, yeah, I, I think um, you're just helping me to see too. It's like, it's a moment of bonding that actually reasserts the hierarchy. And it's like, yeah, I, I definitely feel like I've, I've been in that position as a teacher sometimes with students where I'm like, oh man, the administration, right? Like, and yeah. this together. And like, it's not that that's not a real feeling um, or even potentially a real social solidarity, but it also can mystify and erase the power relationship between me and the students, right? Like I'm grading you. I, you know, have that authority. Um, you know, I'm thinking about this in the context of like when, the administration was putting in COVID protocols in place, you know, and, and the students mm-hmm. and I are both complaining about it because we're both subject to, you know, we wanted them to be more mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, comprehensive or we wanted this or whatever, you know, but um, yeah. So it's interesting how he's like kind of reasserted his authority by blaming somebody above him. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, do you have anything else you want to hit before we jump yeah. to our dundies? The only thing I want to talk about is just how infuriating Michael's complete destruction of the warehouse (laughs) would be if you were there, but also how incredibly hilarious. It's so funny. I find it. So the first part, so he, he's already, he's destroyed their blackboard. He's erased all their important information. Then he starts working with the forklift (laughs) and he, picks up a box and he's trying to drive with it and he knocks over the shelves like dominoes and he says that they'll get someone to clean it up and Daryl says we're the ones that have to clean that up right right (laughs) and Michael says we ought to have this thing serviced I love that move just you know blame your tools um but then a little bit later They've strapped together the shelves. And so Michael then again has the forklift and he's spinning it around. And it's like this huge stack of shelves that's then hitting other things. And it is complete chaos, but just so funny. So so I really, this one, it just makes me laugh a lot. This was definitely peak Michael in this episode. And and I, I thought Steve Carell was... Was was fantastic and uh, I would give a shout out to Jan too I think that actress is so brilliant I think that um just every I I don't know uh her name but whatever whoever she is like every choice she Laura I can't Laura Hardin that might be wrong she is so goddamn funny in the way like she has she just has these way of delivering lines I think is great Mm -hmm. and her chemistry with Steve Carell is very good yeah yeah very good Shall we do the Dundies? Yeah, I'm going to say, I feel like my Dundee is going to depend on your Dundee. Uh, really? I want, I want to spread the Dundies around. Okay. Um, so do you want to go first? Or we might I- have, 
We might have a problem because I need to include some runners up. Oh, okay. Okay. There were a lot of people I considered for this. One, I wanted to give to Phyllis the positive attitude award because she was just, I felt like she was great in this episode. I thought her love of girl talk, her kindness to Pam, when she says to Jan about her divorce, that must have been really hard. She's just seems very sincere and to give her a space to where she could say something real and talk about something real. So I liked that a lot. So she was a consideration. Kevin, I thought about giving it to Kevin for for the way that he protected Jim. That was very (laughs) funny. Oh my God. Tells, so he, he tells Jim, you know, Roy probably heard about you liking Pam. And so, you know, watch out, but he tells him, I've lost my quote in my pages of notes here, but he basically, you know, tells him I will, I'll be here. Like, I'll look out for you, but try not to get into anything. And then when Roy and Jim talk, he's kind of there in the background waiting hoping that he doesn't have to fight and he's very relieved when it breaks up and it's fine, but he's ready to do it. So I thought that was strong for Kevin. I thought Daryl was excellent in this episode. We've talked about him some, but a couple things to highlight his sad face. Daryl is very good at very sad faces. So when Michael is dumping the packet, you know, it's like snow on him and it just shows his face Again, when Dwight is doing the snow angel, yes, Carol's face, great. But ultimately, I, I, I who is left? I want to give this award to someone who has what is one of my favorite lines of all time in the office. One thing I like to say a lot, and this goes to Lonnie, also known as Sea Monster. When he says Michael has, this is after Michael has knocked down all of the stuff and (laughs) Daryl has said, I think it's after Daryl says, you know, we're the ones who got to clean that up. And Lonnie just says, damn it, Michael. (laughs) In this way that is so expressive and I think so well captures the frustration. So the damn it, Michael award goes to Lonnie. Brilliant. I did not see that coming. You took us on a journey. I loved every minute of it. Um, And I'm glad also that you took us on that journey because you covered the two people that I was going to give my Dundee to. Um, And so I'm really torn, but I was really, uh, maybe I can give a dual Dundee. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm giving a dual Dundee. Um, the solidarity award, Mm -hmm. uh, to Phyllis and to Daryl, I just thought it was really, I I had not really seen how Phyllis is as, um, kind of crucial to presenting a counterweight to all of the other, um, ideas or ways of doing, uh, (laughs) gender in, in, uh, at least in the upstairs part of the episode, until you really unfolded some of that. And I was like, oh my God, like that's really interesting. And it really solidifies Phyllis's character for me as, as, as kind of um, to some extent selfless and empathetic. Um, and uh, even if she's also insecure and 
um, anxious, which as you know, that's like our bread and butter. Like, you know, yeah. I love, I love an anxious person. So, um, but on the other hand, Daryl, I mean, the, the quickness with which he kind of takes, I, there is a reading of this episode in which he, he is manipulating Michael the whole time mm. to achieve his desired goal of starting a union. And so I feel like he is clever and yes. built in, in building and manipulating solidarity with Michael and very quickly kind of turning it towards an end that would actually be better for everybody, not just himself. Um, and he sends Roy off to get like the dock workers union card. Um, and yes, Jan's threats uh, squash it, but I don't know, maybe hopefully there could be a union in the office. We'll see. Um, Anyway, I thought that was, uh, I thought I, I was proud of him. And I was proud of the show also for acknowledging the, you know, the existence of a, the, or the possibility that there could be a union, that it would benefit people and that corporate will go to even closing the branch to stop that possibility. Um, okay. Which by the way, like the, one of our Starbucks in town um, this past week just closed the week after the workers voted to unionize. So this episode felt like, wow. you know, very relevant to me um, yeah. in its threat. So, yeah. so here's to you, Phyllis and Daryl and Lonnie. Yes, we had such fantastic Dundee winners this week, I think. Next week, or next episode, I should say, Valentine's next Day. episode, we've got another holiday episode coming for you, Tyler. You know I love a holiday episode. I'm hoping, really let's see, based on the title, I'm hoping that we're going to get some jim pam drama um i'm that'll that'll be my hope i don't know um and maybe i don't know i'm trying to imagine what mike how michael might respond maybe he'll be real jealous or something on valentine's day i don't know <laughs> we've got things to look forward to listeners if you've made it this far thank you for listening thank you so much bye bye <laughs>